think it comes from the practice, just being in the courtroom and living it and breathing it and having to take cases from start to finish. I mean, you start to understand where the breakdowns are. You start to understand who the players are, what the different challenges for each one of those players. And you just start getting it in your brain. If I want to fix it, how do I fix it? And you just take the macro and then you break it down into the micro and formulate yourself a plan. It's no different than trying a case, frankly. If you know how to try a case, you know how to change these systems. There is a problem. How do I find the solution? And if I can't find the solution, how do I just own that part of it and say, look, I'm not going to fix that part. I'm moving on to the next one. There are plenty enough problems out there. If I fix 60% of it, the other 40 will take care of itself. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today was a civil litigator and then a felony prosecutor before being elected to the bench of the 24th Judicial District Court for the Parish of Jefferson in Louisiana. Shortly after, he was appointed to the Management Committee and currently serves the legal community in numerous ways, including being the chair of the Louisiana Supreme Court Technology Commission. This is a judge who is a pioneer in using technology in Louisiana state courts and has been the recipient of numerous awards, including one of the highest judicial honors in the U.S. He was the recipient of the 26th Annual Rehnquist Award for Judicial Excellence. He is also a graduate of the prestigious Presidential Leadership Scholars, where he learned from national leaders, including President George W. Bush and President Bill Clinton. I am so excited and beyond honored to welcome our next lawyer who leads, Judge Scott Schlegel. Judge Schlegel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I'm really excited for you to be here. But before we begin, I want you to help me understand a little bit of a slice of your life. And I ask every guest this. What is a piece of gratitude that you have from today? I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to be here and and serve my community. I'm grateful for this unique opportunity I've been given. And, you know, I think having that kind of mentality and then that gratitude kind of keeps you grounded and, and reminds you of what you're doing and why you're doing it. I agree. Is there anything that you do on a day-to-day basis to keep yourself reminded of your purpose? I'm a man of faith and my faith is everything to me. And that's really why I do what I do. I think that I'm here to serve others. I love that. I want to start at the very beginning. And the reason why I want to do this is with other guests, sometimes I start after law school or with their first position. But with you, because you're a judge and I hold a lot of reverence for judges, I want to know how judges become judges. So did you always want to be a lawyer? No, I had no desire to be a lawyer. My father has a law degree and he was in oil and gas, but he never really practiced law. But no, it was never on the radar. I actually wanted to get into medicine and be a physical therapist, but I found out I couldn't pronounce half the words in my zoology classes and my anatomy classes. So I switched over to finance and actually became a financial advisor before I even went to law school. Really? So after college then? After college, yeah. I started when the market went south for 10 years straight, kind of like it's doing right now. And I've married my high school sweetheart, so we've been together since we were 17. And she looked at me and said, I think it's time to go to law school. So I actually went to law school at night while I was a financial advisor. So that's how the law school started. So you were working full time and then going to law school at night? Yep. How was that? Brutal. But it was, it's (laughs) plenty of other people had it worse than I did. There were people that had children and I couldn't even imagine raising a family at that time and going to law school and going to work. So they had other people that had it worse than I, I can assure you. So 
Why law? Why not other professions? Why the law specifically? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I had it figured out back then. I think I have it figured out now, but I was young and it was just kind of an opportunity that presented itself and I took it and I got accepted. I took a little study course a few weeks before the LSAT, did well enough and got into law school. So the rest is history, as you say. So when you were in law school, was there a specific idea that you had in mind of what you wanted to do when you graduated? With my financial background, I wanted to get into executive planning and doing all those types of things. But there was no real job market for that in the New Orleans area when I graduated. So thankfully, I was able to still get a job and did products liability at a big downtown law firm. And again, thankfully, had an opportunity. It wasn't exactly what I was looking for. But again, when you're young, I don't think anybody's got to figure it out, including me. So you were in this firm. How long were you in this firm for? Three years. And then you moved on to what? Moved on to be a prosecutor in Jefferson Parish, actually became a domestic violence prosecutor for about a year and a half before they assigned me to a division of court where you handle anything from possession of marijuana to murder. That's quite the switch from products liability to that. Tell me, what was the decision-making process? How did that happen? Yeah, I don't think the big firm was a good fit for me personally. I learned a tremendous amount about how to read, how to write, how to take massive amounts of information and compress it. But it's billable hours and long hours, and I just don't think that it fit my personality as well. And was just looking around, and thankfully, I also applied to become a prosecutor and hired as a domestic violence prosecutor. So what drew you to that? What was it about being a domestic violence prosecutor that made you say, you know what, I want to take this job? We talked about it earlier. I feel that it's really important for me just to serve as best as I can, and I found that I could do that as a prosecutor, and I really just wanted to serve my community, and thankfully was, again, offered a job, so it was great. Was this your first foray into the criminal justice system, and specifically, like, working alongside the government since you were doing product liability? First foray into it, but civil practice and criminal practice are completely different. Anybody who's listening to this has gone, yep, yep. When you're in a civil practice and you're at a young associate, it's literally just reading and writing and researching and preparing memorandums. And some days you get to step into court and handle that exciting motion to compel. <laughs> but that's about all you do in the court when you're a young associate. From day one, I was assigned to eight divisions of court doing vertical prosecution, screening our own cases, dealing with all the different aspects of trial work. And it's literally, here's a file, go and get it done. So how long were you a prosecutor for? Five years. For five years. So handled thousands of criminal cases. And, you know, when you're assigned a division of court, you literally are in the courtroom, just getting whatever cases that are together and get them tried. What do you think some of the biggest things you learned during that time? You learn a lot. You learn the code of evidence, which is insanely important as a judge. It's amazing the skill sets that you get from each type of practice. Again, from the civil, I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to work at a big firm with really smart people because when lawyers come into the court, I can look at those briefs and I can look at their arguments and go, come on, we're not having this discovery dispute, are we? Because I lived it. And from a criminal perspective, just trying so many cases as a prosecutor, you kind of see the big picture. The partner told me once as a young associate, you run in there and there's question A asked of you and you run back in with an answer to question A. At some point, they're like, look, there are other questions B and C that you should be able to see by now and answer those because I'm going to have those questions for you. And so I think being able to be in both the civil and criminal justice systems and see it from those perspectives really help you see the big picture and see where you're trying to go and how you're trying to get there and to make sure that folks are getting there. It seems very crucial to be able to see that. Do you think that's almost, in your mind, a requirement to being a judge is to be able to have that kind of experience before sitting on the bench? 
you know, I couldn't speak to that. I think that there's certainly judges that have no criminal experience and some that have no civil experience. And there's some that have 30 years of civil experience, which is much better than my three years when I took the bench, you know? So I think that there is definitely a unique skill set to have as a judge. And I think that we all have our own experiences that prepare us for the bench and some are better prepared when they take the bench than others, but that doesn't mean that he or she can't be a great judge. So what does being a judge mean to you? Being a judge to me is an incredible opportunity to serve my community. I mean, that's really why I ran for judge is to serve in a more meaningful and a deeper capacity. When I was a prosecutor living in the courtrooms, you just see the inefficiencies and it just drove me crazy just to see the inefficiencies in the system. And so my wife was in school. My son was in school. I quit my job, took out a major medical, cashed out some 401k, and I ran to be an elected judge. And thankfully I won because there was no more money in that bank account if, <laughs> if I didn't win. So the only way to change the system in, in my mind is in the leadership positions, whether it's law or finance or anything else, it's the folks that are leading the ship that need to change the direction of the ship. And that's not to say that we're the only ones that can do it, but it's certainly people pick up the phone when they hear judge calls, you know? So the judge in front of your name helps <laughs> advance the cause. I was very excited for you to be on this show. And when you were like, can you do this time? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So I keep hearing you say like how important it is to you to serve your community. Where do you think this desire to serve specifically comes from? My faith. Every bit of my Christian faith is why I do what I do. I mean, I think each and every single one of us is given a certain level of gifts and talents and you can use those to serve others. That's really why I do what I do. I get up every day and say, how can I serve? How can I do it better? Not just do it. How can I do it better every day? And some days... I didn't do it better, but that's okay. There's another day. Just keep failing and iterating, failing and iterating. Don't be afraid to fail. Just keep pushing. I've never met a person that's never failed. Yeah. Although I think the discourse today definitely allows for more people to be understanding of failure and embrace failure, this kind of growth mindset. But I still think that it's hard for a lot of people, and I would say especially attorneys, to be okay with making a mistake or failing at something, especially when you're a professional and you have to do right by your clients and your community. What is a piece of advice that you would give to people who are struggling with the idea of failing? Well, certainly try to fail a lot less, <laughs> you know, you don't want to just go jump off the bridge. You got to prepare yourself. So I would say if you're failing, that's okay. But are you failing because of lack of preparation or lack of understanding? Are you failing because look, it's just natural that you do the best you can and things happen. So are you prepared for whatever the battle is in front of you, or are you just throwing yourself out there? And I think if you can talk to yourself about that and say, look, that's on me, I, I wasn't prepared, then you can at least know where to go from there. So failure is not the end, but certainly you don't want to keep failing and you don't want to keep failing at the same thing. Otherwise you're not learning and you're, you're not moving forward. Fail forward is what I say, fail forward. I think it's great because I think that piece of reflection, that constant assessment of the failures and making sure that you understand the why behind it is the key to growth. And that's why it's important to have the failure so that you can have that assessment. Yep. And I don't remember who said it. It escapes me the name, but somebody said, you can fail, but don't fail at the same thing. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah. So it's very aligned with what you were saying. Okay, so you're a prosecutor. You go all in. You're like, I'm ready to make a change. You take this risk where you say you, you put a lot of money and you put everything that you could into becoming an elected judge. What piece of advice could you give to people who want to do the same things and are afraid to take that jump? What are some of the things that you were able to do and talk to yourself about to give you the confidence to take that risk? Well, first is your family on board. If your family's not on board, don't do it. No doesn't mean always no. It might be no for now. May not be the right time. The timing is a big deal about big part of this. You know, be realistic. Understand the risks that are involved. And if your family is there with you and you understand your why, you know, if you don't understand your why, don't do it. So family, understand your why. And look, take the chance. What's the worst that could happen? You lose. Big deal. I mean, it'll hurt. <laughs> it'll be tough. Nobody's going to like it. You know, you're going to moan and groan for quite some time after the loss, but that's okay. You just keep getting up and keep doing what you think is right and what is right for you and your family. And it'll all work itself out at the end of the day. What were some of the first things that you experienced once you became a judge? Yeah, it's kind of, you don't know until you know. <laughs> Everybody knows what a judge does until you actually become a judge. And then you really understand. I used to give this speech and it would say, hey, how much do you think my robe weighs? And I would hold my robe up and I would ask everybody and you'd get the whole, I don't know, 10 ounces, a pound, two pounds. The answer is you have no idea how much this thing weighs until you put it on. I mean, it's heavy. It's ridiculously heavy. And the point is you see that robe and you think, oh, these people are just making all these different decisions. And it's hard if you care. If you care about what you're doing, if you wield that robe improperly, you're going to hurt somebody and the weight of it will crush you if you don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. So that's kind of just an example of, you know, you don't know until you put it on. You think you know, but you'd really do. Yeah. It's something that I've thought about a lot when it comes to like the weight of being the decision maker, especially when it's affecting people's lives in such a fundamental way. I handle child custody cases. Who gets the children and visitation? You've got to deal with, again, domestic violence victims. You have victims in murders and rapes and horrible things. And civil. Speed is important too. And I'm not saying speed for speed's sake, but if you get sued in a civil matter, if your case lingers for two, three, four years, that's a lot of weight and pressure that people feel. They just want an answer and they just want their matter resolved so that they can continue to move along their life. They just need an answer. They may not like your answer, but they prefer an answer than no answer. It seems as though you've always been aware of the inefficiencies in the courtroom. You've even just mentioned now, like how important it is for speed, how important it is for people to get an answer, to get a decision. Talk to me about how all of this informed all of the incredible changes that you've made, technologically speaking, to the state courts. You look at the different inefficiencies and you just look at the whys behind it. Let's just talk about speed for a minute. There are certain things in the court that should be slow. Let's not speed that process up. There's a real reason that takes time and that's okay. But defend your position. Defend why that process is so darn slow. Defend why that piece of paper has to go from that wire basket to that wire basket to that wire basket, then walk three flights of stairs up to hand to somebody for the next part of the process. You can't defend that. And if you can't defend it, let's look at how do we change it? So really, really understand your workflows. And if you understand your workflows, you can start breaking it down and figuring out where's the holdup, why's the holdup, and do we need to change it? And in the justice system, it's insanely complex and complicated and nuanced and difficult. You have multiple agencies that you're dealing with, the clerks of court, you've got the sheriffs, you've got the 
DAs, you've got the public defenders, you have so many different agencies that you are interacting with that have their own work processes, their own budgets, their own kings and queens. And it's very difficult to change that one wire basket. <laughs> and you just do it. You get up every day and you do one little thing. You've got the whole, how do you walk a thousand miles one step at a time? I jokingly always tell everybody, look, you could tell me no, but I'm going to outlast you. So tell me no today. That's fine. But I guarantee you, I will outlast you. And so that is one of the things that I do. It's just, I pick a workflow. I start looking at the various technologies that exist in the private sector and say, how can I use that for the public sector? How can I use it safely? How can I use it efficiently? Are the costs there that we can actually adopt that technology? And then you just start working on it and you start iterating on it. And then you start and stop, start and stop until you get it done. I've got projects I've been working on for almost 10 years that still have not been complete, but I haven't stopped thinking about it. I haven't stopped doing something about it. You know, send that one email to that clerk, forget about it and put a tickler. And then two months later, send another, hey, where are we on this? First of all, that's a great process in and of itself, right? You practice what you preach, even for your own processes. But where does this understanding of process come from? You don't have a project management background. You're definitely not taught that in law school from what I remember anyway. So where do you think this understanding of process and being able to identify these inefficiencies with the process, where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from the practice. We talked about it earlier, just being in the courtroom and living it and breathing it and having to take cases from start to finish. I mean, you start to understand where the breakdowns are. You start to understand who the players are, what the different challenges for each one of those players. And you just start getting it in your brain of, if I want to fix it, how do I fix it? And you just take the macro and then you break it down into the micro. And again, you just formulate yourself a plan. It's no different than trying a case, frankly. If you know how to try a case, you know how to change these systems. There is a problem. How do I find the solution? And if I can't find the solution, how do I just own that part of it and say, look, I'm not going to fix that part. I'm moving on to the next one because there are plenty enough problems out there. If I fix 60% of it, the other 40 will take care of itself. What was one of the first things that you focused on from a process boundary? Talk to me about that. All right. If you've ever heard me speak, I always talk about the big red book. The big red book drives me crazy. So every clerk in the entire country, minute clerk, probably has the big red book. And if you, a lawyer, want to get a date, you have to call this minute clerk or you have to send a runner to get to this minute clerk and you have to say, hey, I have a motion for summary judgment that I'd like heard. What dates do you have available? That's one thing you have to just start with. And you might have to leave that message. And then that clerk's got to call you back at some point and that clerk's busy. So it might be a day or two or three days and you just want to get something on the calendar. Why does this one individual control the entire court's calendar? And as a judge, I didn't even know what was coming up on my docket because I didn't have the big red book. I'd have to go ask, hey, can I see the big red book to see what's going on? And this thing has scratches in and out of it, the erasures everywhere. I'm like, this is madness, madness. So I purchased an online calendar for 150 bucks, put my calendar online, gave lawyers the opportunity to pick their own dates, call opposing counsel, make sure it works for everybody. It'll send you a text and email reminder with a Zoom link before Zoom was a word. And... It will also give us all the opportunity to not file motions to continue just because no one checked somebody else's calendar. $150 a year. I could change the entire justice system for $150 a year. That's incredible. Not only because it makes your life easier, not only because it makes all the attorneys' lives easier, but it also really helps the parties that they're representing. 
Absolutely. And that to me is the most important, the most impactful thing. And that really goes back to you serving your community. You're creating these processes for the benefit of the parties. We don't need to spend $150 for a runner. We don't have to spend another couple hundred bucks to file a motion to continue. And here's the other thing. When you, the lawyer, gets the text or email reminder, you are triggered to call opposing counsel and go, do we really need to bother Judge Schlegel on this silly discovery dispute? And half the time, half my docket falls off because people are sending letters saying, we've resolved it, or we don't need that pretrial anymore. And we spend less time in court, which drives down the cost of litigation because of a simple $150 online calendar that has built-in text and email reminders. What's cool about it is you're almost like improving the processes of the firms that they're working for too. Have you heard from other lawyers that they've been inspired by these processes and have incorporated them firm-wide for themselves? I don't know if they've incorporated it, but they all love the ability to pick their own dates online and schedule it themselves. Those reminders are very interesting, especially as it relates to bringing opposing counsel together. Yeah, and that same calendar we use for criminal as well. I had about 80 cases on my criminal docket today, and we send texts and email reminders to defendants as well so we can cut down on the failures to appear, which cuts down on the warrants, which cuts down on the amount of people that go to jail just because they forgot. Now, there's some people that are running. That's, I got it. We'll cut warrants for those individuals, but... You know, 15 people just truly forgot. So why don't we send them texts and email reminders as well and value their time as well and start staggering our dockets. I can't handle 100 cases at 9 a.m., but most courts start at 9 a.m. and most people just pack them in. Come at 9, 10, or 11. It doesn't matter to me. going to be here until all those cases are resolved. You might have to drop your kids off at school. You might have to take public transportation. You might have an appointment in the morning and you can't make it till 11. That's fine. Tell me what time you want to come. I'll give you the day. You tell me the time. And then we'll send you text and email reminders to, again, help you remember so that we can keep the cases moving forward. That is incredible. I just remember when I was litigating, I used to do landlord-tenant court in the Bronx and in New York City. And then I also did tax lien foreclosures in Manhattan. And I would always have to show up as soon as the court would open it. And sometimes I'd spend hours there waiting. You have to build a client for your time sitting there. And so to me, what an efficient thing and also a considerate thing, like you said, for other people's lives to be able to say, you know what? I get that people have lives. I also can't handle 80 cases at nine o'clock all at once. And so let's stagger them. Let's give people that flexibility and improve everyone's lives in the process. I think that's so fantastic, Judge. I have watched a lot of your interviews in preparation for this podcast. One of the things that I actually found really interesting that you implemented was verification of the person that's actually mm -hmm. on the other side of the screen. Yep. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what you did there? Yeah, in the state of Louisiana, we have a digital license. We're actually one of the first in the country to have digital licenses. And as soon as the pandemic hit, I reached out to the digital license folks and said, hey, look, you can verify when somebody's purchasing alcohol and they show up at your door and you want to verify how old they are. How about you verify the identity of the individual for me in court since we're going to be doing this all virtually? Look, we don't check the driver's license of everybody who comes into our courts because they're here physically. So you're not going to get your buddy to stand in physically for you. We have the lawyers here to verify, yep, that's my client. But when we went all virtual overnight for two years, I didn't feel comfortable attaching somebody without first verifying that it was, in fact, John Doe in front of me who didn't appear the next time after I ordered him to. And so we built in a remote verification process whereby the individual simply pushes a button on my website, 
it generates a random code. They push that random code into their Louisiana driver's license LA wallet, and then it pushes back to the court. Yep, that is Scott Schlegel in front of you. How did you approach that whole process? I have random thoughts every day and I call random people every day. (laughs) (laughs) Do you write them down? Is there a red book? There's no red book. No, if it is, it's like in one notes or something. It's electronic, I can assure you. You know, there's that thing, if it takes you two minutes, do it now. If it takes you a little bit longer, write it down. So most of these are quick hit, send this email to this CEO or I know somebody who knows somebody who knows, you know, the first thing I did was call the state representative that I knew who passed the legislation and said, make the intro for me. Well, when you do write a book one day, I do highly recommend you call it the Red Book. (laughs) That could be be really, really fun if you went that way. (laughs) So any other significant changes, technologically speaking, that you want to share that you feel could also be really helpful to other courts that are looking to do the same thing? Yeah, look, I always tell everybody, if you spend... $500 or less a year, I can change your entire world overnight. Literally in three days, I can change your entire world. Build a website, a simple Squarespace Wix website for 200 bucks a year. Embed an online calendar for 150 bucks a year. Throw all your PDF forms online that cost you nothing. Embed your Zoom license or your WebEx license, whatever video conferencing platform you're using. That's literally under $500 a year would change the entire system. I mean, that's it. That's simple. It's very difficult to do, but it's that simple if you know how to do it. And then the most recent one that I think will be very helpful for lawyers is I've embedded a drag and drop feature on my website so that lawyers could just drag and drop their courtesy copies and it automatically goes into my OneDrive and I have it immediately. So, you know, don't send a runner. I've had my fax machine off forever. I've always just told lawyers to fax courtesy copies. Don't print everything and put a stamp on it and mail it out. That costs you a fortune. And I've always tried to figure out a way to drag and embed, but now I can. And so now I had a civil jury trial on Monday and the lawyers were dragging and dropping all the trial exhibits over the weekend. And it was just dumping into my OneDrive immediately. So Monday morning, they didn't have to bring a flash drive. They didn't have to bring those big old bench books for the judge for trial and spend all that money. It literally was already in my iPad because I had the drag and drop feature and it cost me nothing. How do you influence other people to get on board with this. Not that they wouldn't, let's say, be on board theoretically, but it takes people time to learn and to change their own processes. Talk to me about how your ability to, you know, influence other people to get on board with changes like this. I always use the four minute mile as an example. You know, no one thought the four minute mile was possible, but as soon as somebody broke the four minute mile, everybody started breaking the four minute mile. And I think it's really just showing people what's possible out there? Is it possible? Can I do it? Is it expensive or inexpensive? So, you know, once you start breaking down the barriers and you just start reducing as many barriers as you can, no, it doesn't cost that much money. Now, look, there are things that I do that do cost a lot of money. So, you know, I don't want to go out there and go, Hey, look, this is all cheap. It's not. (laughs) There's a lot of things that I do that cost money. But I think what the pandemic did is everybody now has the hardware necessary to do it. And they just need to get the SaaS or the software to take it to the next step. Everybody's got the webcams now. Everybody's got the audio. Everybody's got the computers. Everybody's got the proper Wi-Fi speeds. Everybody's got what they need. And now that you have those bones, you can start layering. So I would say just start small and start layering from there. We can layer you to $1,000 a year. Then I can layer you to $5,000 a year. If you give me $5,000 a year, oh, what we could do. Five grand is not a lot of money when you're talking about changing the justice system. Know the process. And now just start layering the technologies. You'd be amazed at how much you can do literally in one week's time 
with $1,000. Absolutely. So I'm going to move on because believe it or not, we're actually getting towards our time. And I have a few questions that I like to ask all of our guests. So I'll start with the first one. What does leadership in law mean to you? I think we've been talking about it, seeing what is broken with the justice system and taking ownership of it and saying, look, I'm not okay with that and I want to fix it. And just working with everybody to fix it. And look, we're not going to fix everything. I get it. It's all good. But there are certain things that we can fix if we just move in the same path together. And we're not going to agree on everything. And that's okay as well. But we can agree on 50%. Everybody can agree that the big red book must go. <laughs> we all can agree on that. But again, you know, like we'll have great debates over whether virtual jury trials are smart thing to do or not. Look, debate that all day long. I'm not an advocate for it, but I know others are. There'll be great debates of whether or not we should be all in person again versus some sort of hybrid. Those are great things to, to talk about. But there are certain things that you can look at and go, those forms are horrible. Can we, for the love of God, put those online in a good readable format that's easy to find? Can we just put a website together that has phone numbers so I can call the right person? I mean, how hard is it to get a phone number to a certain division or a certain employee in that division. Just look, website, phone numbers, names, that'd be great. Those things are so simple, but they are challenging to do in a justice system that's not used to technology. It's also trying to, like you said, see the bigger picture, which is trying to understand from the person that's using it, how to map that out in the easiest way possible. Because I think a lot of the times, or at least it used to be with the older websites that you just throw a bunch of information in a way that works best for the person that's creating it. But in this sense, you're saying, I need to better understand how people are using it and then making sure that it's mapped out in a way that's easy to use. Yep, absolutely. We understand each other's roles, but let's go ahead and reduce as many barriers as we can. Yes. What do you think is one thing that you would improve about the legal industry at large? That's a big question. Usually people are like one and I'm like, just one. <laughs> don't have all day, but yeah. Process. Considering the processes. I don't think people necessarily consider start to finish the entire process, whether that's the lawyers or the judges or the clerks, just how many clerks still don't have e-filing. I mean, that's just a process that can be just changed it's very difficult to go for paper to e-filing, but that's just if each person looked at their process, because they're the experts in their process and said, all right, I'm going to start designing a better system, then I think we'd be where we need to be in, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> I love that. Consider the process. Everyone should be considering the process. What is something that people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? Objection, speculation. <laughs> Explain that. No, I'm saying I object to you asking me to speculate. When oh, I, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little rusty when it comes yeah, to like, it looks like it. To court jargon. I mean, it's been like 10 plus years, but I got it. I got it. Yeah. Um, objection denied. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think people misunderstand people. What I mean by that is we each have our own roles in the system and not everybody can play the whole role. A prosecutor has a role to play. A public defender has a role to play. A judge has a role to play. And when something goes awry or something doesn't pan out the way one thinks, they think it's one person's responsibility for the entirety of the outcome, as opposed to that person did his or her job. People don't understand nuance. What we do is very nuanced. 
And you can't broad stroke the justice system. Everybody broad strokes the justice system. Nobody understands how complex and difficult this is. You can read a charge on a criminal rap sheet that doesn't tell you anything. That just tells you the charge. There's so much to that charge and so much to what comes next. And it's just, it's insanely complicated and nuanced. And I just wish folks wouldn't broad stroke the justice system because you can't do that. Excellent answer. Truly. What is a piece of practical advice for our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law who are looking to follow your lead. Pick something to start with and just start. Do something little every single day, whether that's reading an article or sending an email. Look, call random CEOs all day long. It's fun. They may pick up the phone. I've never had one tell me no. And look at it from different perspectives. If you walk around your daily life, you'll see all these different systems that are in place that people have spent millions of dollars thinking about and workshopping. It's really the same skill set that can be used in the justice system if you just look at it from that perspective. Just rename all the roles to what it is in the private sector. I look, and I get it. We have different complexities and different things to deal with, like public records requests and different budgets. And we can't just go buying what we want to buy. You have to go through the right processes. But if you just pick something and start and do something little every single day, you will see progress. Outlast them. I was going to say that. They're always going to answer your call because you'll just outlast them. <laughs> just keep calling. I love that. What is something that you do for self-care? I frankly look at this stuff all day, every day. This is my fun. But, you know, look, I hang out with my wife and son all the time. I, I was playing the guitar before I jumped on this podcast. I also like to play the guitar. Oh, yeah? You're going to have to show me some things. If I'm ever in New Orleans, we're going to have a jam session. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Do you have a favorite song you like to play? I don't. I love the acoustic guitar and anything that can be played on the acoustic guitar, I'll give it a shot. Exercise, read, hang out with the family. Pretty boring stuff. It's not boring. It's beautiful. It really is. <laughs> well, Judge, I want to thank you so much for being here today. If someone wanted to connect with you, what is the best way that they can do that? Onlinejudge.us is my website. Use the contact us button. If you send a message, it goes straight to a Slack channel that everybody sees in two seconds. At Judge Schlegel is my Twitter handle if you ever want to see what's going on. But the easiest way to get me is online. Judge, it was really an honor to be able to listen and hear your story from beginning to end, to hear about the impact that you're making, and really just getting to know you and really getting an in-depth understanding of who you are as a person. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.